Welcome, and thank you for joining us. You are listening to the Seedfield Podcast, presented to you by Antioch University. With every episode of the Seedfield Podcast, we celebrate and share stories of those who embody the spirit of our founder, Horace Mann, as they win victories for humanity. I'm your host, Jasper Nighthawk, and this week we're lucky to have a guest host, Dr. Falami DeVoe. Falami holds a PhD from Antioch's Graduate School of Leadership and Change, and she currently teaches in our Individualized Master of Arts program. We're excited to have her guest host the Seedfield podcast, in part because she's currently launching another Antioch-related podcast. This one is called And the Conversation Continues, and it features conversations with thinkers around the Individualized Master of Arts program that she teaches in. But today, Falami is taking over the hosting duties for the Seedfield podcast. Falami, thank you for working with us this week. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. I have had the honor of listening to an early cut of your conversation with Dr. Akil Termizzi, and I just think you guys had such a great conversation. I'm really excited to share it with our listeners. Jasper, you missed it. We had a blast. It was very exciting. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to get to it. But I was thinking for our listeners who maybe are less steeped, who don't have a PhD as you do in leadership and change, I was hoping that you could just tell me and our listeners really quick what leadership studies is all about and the kinds of topics that you guys are thinking about and really who leadership studies is for. Right. That's a wonderful question um, because, you know, not everyone walking down the street or has this PhD in leadership and change, right? It's typically a very specific content area. And so I've been asked that question a lot after I completed my doctorate. And uh, having this this leadership background in, in this, what is leadership studies? Well, it is really for folks who are about wanting to create and lead change in their communities and in their organizations and their schools and in their businesses. And so the Graduate School of Leadership and Change offers uh, students the opportunity to learn, to have this interdisciplinary approach to understanding all the different types of leadership theories, you know? So there's transformational leadership theory, there's authentic leadership, there's spiritual leadership. So there's all these different, um, many leadership theories that we learned about. And then what's the most important is, okay, so what do you do with this information? The practical side and creating change and leading change in one's individual community. I love that idea of grounding the practice of leadership in more theoretical concerns and research-based concerns. And I think that your conversation, you and Akil, get right into it. So I'm really excited to, to take a listen and share that with our listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jasper. Greetings. My name is Dr. Falami DeVoe, and it is a great pleasure to serve as a co-host for today on the Seedfield podcast. As host of And the Conversation Continues, I engage in conversations that invite guests 
to explore a range of social justice topics. And so I am elated to have this conversation today with my former professor, Dr. Akil Teramizi. I am a proud graduate of Antioch University's PhD in Leadership and Change. And Dr. Teramizi, or I like to call him, and for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to call him Akil. Akil is the Professor of Leadership Management and Service, and he has over 25 years of international experience in consulting, teaching, research, and practice focusing on leadership and management. And his teaching and advising focus on globally responsible leadership, employee and organizational well-being, social innovation, and social sector leadership. So I am telling you, he has a lot to offer today. And so I am very excited to ask questions and just have a bit of conversation with Akil. So welcome to the Seedfield Podcast, Akil. Well, Ami, thank you very much. And it is wonderful to be reconnected. And I very much look forward to our exchange today. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, as I said, I'm an alum of the Antioch University Graduate School of Leadership and Change. And there I received a vast amount of exposure to leadership theories and and faculty scholars like yourself, Akil, who uh, have expertise in many different areas from critical race theory, um, from psychology and organizational management. And Akil, during my time there in our program, I learned all different types of leadership theories from you know transformational leadership theory to authentic leadership. However, I really clung to servant leadership. I actually, I don't know if you remember this or not, I actually wrote up one of my papers arguing that holistic health coaches are servant leaders. So this is one of the things I admire about you and your focus on servant leadership. So can you talk a little bit about this leadership theory and how it became important to you? Absolutely. And I think it's just important to remember, as you noted in your comment, there's just a lot of wisdom out there. So in that sense, servant leadership theory is a sort of a very important, a very time-relevant theory. But I just wanted to emphasize not the only theory. So let me talk about my personal and professional interest in this theory. As a student of leadership for over two decades, I was always intrigued and drawn towards leadership ideas which put service and humanity at the center. And uh, frankly, that is one of the reasons why I was and still am drawn to the idea of servant leadership. When we look at, you know, some of the sort of specific empirically tested ideas that have emerged and that folks both on the research side and the practice side that they are working with, they include um, notions such as empowerment, uh, accountability, humility, emotional uh, healing, creating value for the community. So those are sort of all the reasons which sort of, you know, go back to that notion of human-centeredness. And this is why I believe servant leadership is a little different and also is just very important given the times that we are living in. And in a recent publication, when I, when I wrote about servant leadership, I started that with a quote from uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela. And I would just like to quickly go ahead and share that quote because I think it brings out the essence of servant leadership and what differentiates it a little bit. So he used the following words 
What counts in life is not the mere fact that we have lived. It is what difference we have made to the lives of others that will determine the significance of the life we lead. So I think it is this difference we have made to the lives of others, which I think is important and a differentiating factor. And that, that is why my interest in this particular leadership theory continues today. I so love that. All of that resonates with me, particularly this, this notion you said of service and humanity at the center. And times like these, that's for me, I believe is so important in progressing our society, right? And then the, the Nelson Mandela quote, in making a difference you made in the difference in the lives of others. Wow, absolutely. I mean, and, and then I think about leaving legacy, like servant leaders, many servant leaders have left a legacy and that legacy has been how they have led and made a difference in the lives of others. So I totally love that. I'm, I'm going to use that as I'm working um, with clients and, and I'm putting this information into my courses. So thank you. I appreciate that. So let's talk a little bit about Akil. We're talking all about this leadership and leadership and change and different leadership theories. Let's talk about the importance of training and developing leaders. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Absolutely. So I think sort of, you know, a couple of things come to mind. We have for a long period of time made this assumption that we can train and develop leaders. And as someone who has been in this business for a long period of time, I think that assumption is correct. However, that, that assumption demands and sort of, you know, requires that a couple of conditions be in place for it to be met. So one of those is that on part of organizations, for instance, that there is this willingness to invest in training and development opportunities over short, medium and long term. So that's condition number one. Condition number two is when those resources are available for the individual to say that I'm going to make a commitment to that developmental process. So I think when those conditions are met, the journey of training and development can then begin. And then I use the word journey intentionally because really embracing and practicing those terms in terms of work of leadership and change is not easy. Daniel Goldman, under his umbrella of emotional intelligence, gave us you know, a lot of good vocabulary in terms of training and development that is applicable to our conversation. So a couple of things that Daniel Goldman and his colleagues have talked about, you know, they include self-awareness and self-regulation. So training and development journey in the context of leadership begins with sort of that commitment to self-awareness and self-regulation. Sounds simple. But when we say self-awareness, it requires certain amount of investment and courage to learn about our blind spots, to identify some of our developmental opportunities. And then self-regulation at the same time uh, demands from us that as we put some of the ideas and the sort of commitments to change that we make in ourselves, in our teams and in our social system, you know, we will stay with that commitment to sort of practice, even if we make mistakes. So again, those kinds of actions require a lot of courage on the individual's part over a period of time to 
improve one's leadership practice. And then as that is happening, going back to my first condition one more time, and I think it's important, that's why I'm emphasizing it, that from an organization perspective or in a community setting, those who have decided to support that training and developmental journey, on the one hand, they have to provide resources, including mentorship where relevant. But on the other hand, they also have to stay patient, right? Because leadership improvement is not something that happens uh, overnight. It takes a little bit of time. And along the way, there are sometimes challenges. There are sometimes mistakes. And then the, you know, when the right signals are in place, that certain amount of mistakes and experimentation is encouraged and welcomed, um, individuals respond to those signals. So I've spent a couple of extra minutes <laughs> on this question. I hope, I hope it is okay. But I think it is, it is very important. Two or three day long workshops, training programs and interventions, they are important, but in many cases, not sufficient to sort of support the kind of improvements that we are interested in and the kinds of improvements that we want to sustain so that leadership practice, it sort of shifts or it changes in the way we desire it to change and then can bring the kind of results and improvements that we are expecting in our communities, teams and organizations. I so love this conversation, um, Akil, and particularly talking about for that, you know, thinking about the sustainability, what's going to be sustainable, right? And then I started thinking about, so what does it look like? Because, you know, oftentimes um, managers are or leaders have to be evaluated, right? You know, at particular points in their career. So do we, does it look like evaluation tools are changed or assessments are changed to match this, this self-awareness? How can questions around self-awareness and mindfulness be included into this process of evaluating the growth of a leader, right? So that's, that's something that sparked uh, in me, as you were talking, I'm, I'm about, you know, because oftentimes it's like, did this person show up on time? Did they, it, that quantitative type of information? What about using some deep qualitative data that looks at how this person has progressed in their journey, as you said, in this leadership journey that includes self-awareness? You know, that includes the, the mindfulness. That's just what I'm thinking there. <laughs> What are your thoughts? No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, there's certainly progress, right, in terms of um, yes, in terms of how we how we approach this work. So you and you know and our audience would know that you know the so-called three sixty degree approaches um, they have been around for about twenty years now, and they are extremely valuable. Uh, so for any listeners who may not be familiar with it, three sixty degree simply implies that focal leader is in the center, she or he is evaluating herself or himself, and then key constituents around them, uh, including their supervisor, peers, um, relevant members of community, they are invited to give feedback. And that's why the term 360 degree. Now, now imagine that you know, when you do that as opposed to 30, 40 years ago, when a supervisor was sitting down once a year and evaluating someone this approach is fairly rich. Now, coming back to your question, many of these approaches are primarily quantitative, right? To sort of bring the kind of uh, efficiency that we value. 
But then to fully capture what may be going on in a particular context, I don't think we need to shy away in terms of further supplementing those good tools that we have at our disposal uh, with more open-ended and qualitative approaches. So I think, you know, a little bit of additional thoughtfulness, which again goes back to the two commitments that I have talked about previously, right, could really further strengthen some of the progress that we have made in terms of how we generate feedback, which I think is the spirit or heart of your question, Falami, which is so central to me. Right kind of feedback is just so central in terms of identifying meaningful improvement opportunities. Yeah, thank you for that observation and that good question. Yeah, you're welcome. And you know, that kind of goes to my uh, next question in thinking about, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about this. So what do you think are humanity's pressing challenges and crises, if you will? And what kind of leaders are needed to address those challenges? Again, in a, another important question, follow me. I mean, there are some obvious crises and challenges that we are all aware of, you know. Every day we are hearing about the climate challenge. Then our news channels are continuously reminding us about inequities and injustices that continue to prevail. And they have been surfacing in a variety of ways, ranging from how we police our st streets to how we pay for hard work in many industries, um, gender disparities, uh, extreme political divisions across countries and regions is another challenge. We saw some of the manifestations of that in the US capital. I think something that is perhaps not on our radar directly is the challenge of the failing global governance. And that challenge became evident in how the world responded to or failed to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. And then these challenges, the world is aware of those. And climate change, we have been talking about it for, for about 30 years. Under the UN-sponsored conversations and, and exchanges around the world, a few years ago, the world landed on what we now call the the 17 uh, UN-sponsored Sustainable Development Goals. So I think the list of challenges is absolutely very long and it's also many of these challenges are very, very urgent. I guess some of my hope and optimism comes from that when even when we look at the, the, the seven SDGs, SDG number 17 is actually inviting the world to work together, right? It is very much partnership focused. So then this brings me to the second part of your question, which is what kind of leadership is needed to respond to and address some of these challenges. So I think when, when we look at these 17 SDGs or just you know my understanding of some of the big challenges and crises that I talked about a minute ago, it is clear that actions and approaches that are collaborative, that are purpose-driven, that are holistic, that are human-centered, these are the kinds of approaches that will work, that will help us begin this process of healing and moving forward and, and, and creating a more just world. I love this. I can't, I, you know, I keep, I'm writing so much. It's just like it reminded me back when we were in class. <laughs> so thank you for this is just, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. So I understand you, you are within the Graduate School of Leadership and Change. There's this new certificate. There's this this understanding of uh, conscious leadership. So I want you to talk for me about 
what is conscious leadership? What does conscious leadership look like? What does it sound like? Tell everybody what conscious leadership is. So I will say a couple of things about conscious leadership, Falami. One is that many practitioners know about conscious leadership from some of the, the work that was done under the umbrella of conscious capitalism. The, you know, sort of that notion uh, of ca- conscious capitalism is in, in many ways uh, brainchild of the co-founder of Whole Foods, John Mackey. Now, that is a very important piece of work, which is sort of very business focused. It is inviting those who are involved in uh, leading important, powerful national and global business entities to think about how they operate and engage with the world beyond the so-called profit motive. And John Mackey's voice is also important because he has put a model out there, right, of co-creating an organization and then running that organization for a long period of time using a certain set of principles. So when he wrote about conscious capitalism in his book, he talked about a few other connected pieces which support that kind of capitalism to thrive and and sustain. And then a couple of those ideas included working with stakeholders and working with the stakeholders in, you know, in ways that we had not worked previously. And then the idea of stakeholders goes beyond, well beyond shareholders and also outside the organizational boundaries as well. And this again goes back to when I was answering one of your earlier questions to this notion of collaboration and then approaching collaboration fundamentally in fundamentally different ways. And I guess the other piece that I would again emphasize based on uh, Mackey's work is that Organizations today, they need to create a different kind of culture to sort of promote the kind of society that we want to live in and society in which these organizations survive. So he emphasized, again, paying attention to ideas such as well-being and dignity. And then in his second book on conscious leadership, the subtitle was Elevating Humanity. So I just wanted to, I guess, acknowledge and note some of these important contributions which came from the world of practice. But then for me, the idea of conscious leadership is bigger than that. So if we just stay with this notion of elevating humanity, for example, for a minute, that is just not a concern for the business world. It's a concern for every sector uh, in which we have organized life and it should be of concern to us in our society at large. So in that sense, the theory and practice of what I consider conscious leadership existed long before conscious capitalism was was written. And also its scope is much broader as well, because I believe that this notion is relevant to every sector of society. Wow. So exciting. So exciting to talk about conscious leadership and to understand this approach. And again, I love hearing the, the consistent theme about elevating humanity. And it's that just really resonates with me. And I, I want to know, this seems to be a, and then again, I don't know how new this is. And you were saying about John Mackey, but in terms of a fresh approach, this is what makes a leadership, a approach fresh versus stagnant, because we have had various leadership approaches and theories this seems to be very fresh. What makes a leadership approach versus uh, fresh versus stagnant? 
I love this question. Thank you for that, Falem. So I'm sure in one of our conversations at some point, I have probably mentioned one of my favorite ancient philosophers by the name of Heraclitus. There's a quote that is attributed to him, and it goes something like that. You cannot step in the same river twice. You cannot step in the same river twice. Now, this quote is interpreted in a few different ways. And here is, you know, one of the interpretations or my interpretation that change is around us all the time, right? And not fully acknowledging this reality makes leadership stagnant. And on the other hand, what makes it fresh is a continuous invitation to innovate. So reinventing ourselves and encouraging those who form the leadership equation with us, that is a fresh approach, right? That is a fresh way or a different way of, of approaching our existence and our work together, right? In another major leadership theory that you are familiar with, transformational leadership, the late Professor Bernard Bass talked about this notion of intellectual stimulation as one of the main characteristics. Now, when we go back to that theory and we look at the idea of intellectual stimulation, it is simply, again, an invitation, an encouragement to ourselves to be creative, to do things differently, and improve services, processes, products, and our collective well-being. And I think when leadership is approached that way, that invitation to intellectually stimulate ourselves as leaders and those who are in that leadership relationship with us, that makes leadership fresh from my perspective. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. Thank you. So I want to go back to the conscious portion, the conscious leadership. So I'm familiar with conscious, but conscious leadership, consciousness. Uh, I'm a holistic practitioner. And within our community, there's this conversation between one being conscious and one being mindful and mindful. So I want you to talk, how does mindfulness fit into conscious Mm -hmm. leadership? So I think there are a couple of important connections over there. As we are coming out of of this pandemic, to some extent, uh, we are not fully out of it yet. One of there's an important conversation taking place about being resilient and what makes us resilient. And within the context of leadership theory and practice, it's also an emerging conversation there that what makes leaders resilient and that having that quality or that sort of competency to become resilient is extremely important. So you know this from your practice as well, Falami, that you know, mindfulness is one vehicle, a very important vehicle to help us move towards our well-being. And leaders who are doing difficult work for them to sustain themselves over a period of time, they have to take care of their well-being. So for me, whether someone who is practicing specifically conscious leadership or any leadership that is committed to the common good, challenging structures that make this world difficult for certain segments of our population and leave people behind. The stresses that come with that kind of leadership, those stresses quantitatively and qualitatively are little different from what may be labeled as general leadership practice. So in that sense, you know what we know about mindfulness 
and its linkage to, to, to well-being. There's a very important connection there between that and what leaders can do and what leaders can learn and what leaders can take away from there to improve their well-being and then sustain themselves, sort of do the kind of difficult work that many people do in the kinds of sectors that, um, that you and I have touched upon a little bit. I think the sort of other piece that I want to talk about a little bit is that in many ways, not always, but in many ways, the work of mindfulness is sort of individual centered. So that, you know, a question is making me think about this connection that as we think about conscious leadership, which in many ways is very much about the collective, then if we were to sort of look at a sort of a two-way connection and what can practitioners of mindfulness work take away from conscious leadership and its focus on collective action and collective approaches, so forth and so on. So I hope this is answering or touching upon your question a little bit. Yes, yes, it is. That was very good. And I think I just have one more question and I'm going to let you go. What are some steps that folks could take to start practicing conscious leadership? Because, you know, I, I think you would probably agree that everyone can, is a leader in some way, shape or form. So how can anybody take steps each day to um, become a conscious leader? So a little bit of my writing focuses on another related lens. So I'll use that lens to, to, to answer this question. And that's the sort of uh, lens of responsible leadership, uh, Falami, that you also very generously mentioned in your, in your introduction. So in my work on responsible leadership, I have argued that in order to act responsibly, and this very much overlaps with the idea of conscious leadership as well, we need to ask ourselves, what are our anchoring principles and anchoring values, and be very clear on those. So then as when, when you ask me about next steps, as we think about improving our practice, one of the first questions that we need to answer is, what sort of main values drive our work? and then sort of being clear on those. I think the other piece that I want to emphasize in terms of taking action, if you will, is that so much of our leadership, and you know this very well, is relational in nature. So taking stock of our existing social capital, and we all recognize that different leadership contexts have very different demands. But in most of those uh, contexts, we are dependent on other human beings to help us do important work of leadership. So really, you know, revisiting this idea of what are my networks? Who are the sort of main stakeholders over here? How am I connected to them? Do I need to expand that network? Am I fully capitalizing on it? So I think as we sort of, in a deliberate and intentional fashion, think through sort of, you know, that notion of relationships, I think we are a little more prepared to do our work. And then often, I think, going back to another question around risk-taking courage and, and making mistakes, sort of more trusting relational environment that we have developed for ourselves, you know, the better off we are in terms of absorbing some of the shocks that may come our way. And I think then, finally, I would say, as I've said to you before, and going back to the sort of second condition of training and development, you know, am I ready to take different kind of action in this world? Am I ready to reinvent myself a little bit? How will that action look a little different? And how will I reinvent myself a little bit? It takes a little bit of risk. It takes a little bit of courage. But I believe that most of us, most of the time, in most contexts, can do that. 
but then just in a very <laughs> mindful and an honest kind of way raising that question and then sort of you know answering it that this is the change i am looking for in myself and and in the world that i am i am uh, operating in becomes one of the next steps to improve our practice and and lives of those uh, who are impacted by that practice thank you so much akil is is so much richness in this conversation i love what you said in terms of am i ready to take action and reinvent myself for the better this is such a message for right now so important and i and i know that many who have an, us coming out of and well, we're actually still in the pandemic but many people that i'm close to really did reinvent themselves during this time period right and so um that just kind of goes to to your statement they're ready to take take action in reinventing oneself. So I am so grateful and appreciative of this time that we spent together and also just very grateful for having the opportunity to serve as a co-host here on the Seafield podcast. And again, thank you so much. And I'm wishing you all well and to take good care. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed Falami's hosting as much as I did, consider listening to her podcast and the conversation continues on YouTube. We'll also include a link in our show notes. In our show notes, you'll also find more information about the Graduate School of Leadership and Change and its doctoral and certificate offerings. The professional certificate designed by Dr. Termizzi, Advancing Conscious Leadership, will be launching later this summer. Follow Antioch University on Facebook and LinkedIn to learn when it becomes available. We post these show notes to our website, theseedfield.org, where you'll also find full episode transcripts, prior episodes, and more. The Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. A special thanks to Melissa Badalin, Karen Hamilton, and Melinda Garland. Thank you for joining us today. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast. Podcast.